Score, the podcast. The only show taking you inside the studios of the world's most celebrated composers and musical storytellers. Presented by Spitfire Audio. I'm Kenny Holmes. I am Robert Kraft. That's true. Uh, This is Score the Podcast, presented by Spitfire Audio. And you may, if you're watching on YouTube, we got different backdrops. A bunch of stuff happened. Um, It's been a long couple of weeks, long month uh, for all of us. Um, And somehow we're still doing the show, which is exciting for all of us, including you, our listeners. And we have a treat for you today. He was one of the first guests on our show. Um, We launched with three episodes, John Debney, Harry Gregson Williams, and our guest today, nine-time Oscar-nominated composer, James Newton Howard joining the show, and uh, we're we're really excited. When we first started doing the show, Robert, I think we did it a little bit differently, right? I mean, it was a shorter interview, really focused on the movies, and so we didn't get a chance to go to the backstory as much. Um, but it was also one other fundamental difference. May I remind you that when we first started doing the show, we are so old, and we've done this show for so many seasons that we did it in person. Yes, and and we went to James Newton Howard's fabulous studio and hung with him, and that was part of the joy of doing the show, which is getting a chance to sit in, in his engine room. And for yeah. me, you know, I'm just such a huge fan of his that just to hang with him was a treat. So that's one big difference. But yeah, the format of the show has grown and changed. But he's a great guest. I'm looking forward to hearing hearing the interview. Yeah, a lot of interesting insight from him, and he's got a bunch of new projects. I mean, he, uh, he's he got Jungle Cruise out, which that score is so, so fantastic, um, and no pun intended. He's got Fantastic Beasts coming out, Fantastic Beasts 3. Uh, that's upcoming, Raya and the Last Dragon on Disney+, Plus, which is another really great uh, animated film, and the score is what really surprised me. I mean, there's action cues, there's some really beautiful slower cues. Uh, It's just, it really highlights the range of uh, Maestro Newton Howard. Would you say Newton Howard or just Howard? I'd go with Newton Howard. That's his preference. And Um, uh, I I forgot to say good morning as well to composer Carol, who also has a new room there. We both moved. Yeah. I see Kenny. More records on display. Same time. Um, Hello, good morning. Good morning. You both moved. You're right. You both are on the move in Los Angeles, and um, I'm thinking of moving to um, (laughs) Mars because uh, I've got an invitation to play a date on Mars, and they said I could stay, so you never know what will happen next, but if I do go, I hope I can get score the podcast, and... Yeah, that, as long as they have Wi-Fi. Oh, can you imagine? As long as they <laughs> have Wi-Fi. The and I can also talk a little bit about, went to the Martians, my new friends, about Spitfire and how grateful Ooh. we are wow. to Spitfire for making these incredible orchestral sample libraries. What do you think? How did I do on that segue? A-plus transition. That was the first Spitfire segue from Mars. That, and, well, you uh, know what? Paul really and Christian, was. I hope you guys heard that. That that's a first here on. Score we are Podcast. interstellar, and <laughs> but and it means for any professional, whether you're an Earthling or a Martian, whether you're just starting out or a seasoned pro, Spitfire has so many sounds you'll love. 
Yes, and every month, as you know, they release a new library in their free Labs series, and you can also get an entire orchestra at your fingertips in the form of the BBC Symphony Orchestra Discover Edition. It's absolutely free if you want to go online and sign up for that. Um, There's a bunch of free stuff, the Labs, the Discovery Edition, but there's also the big packages, and we have a promo code that you can save... 25% 25% on your first order of Spitfire products using the promo code SCORE2021. Included in that is uh, a package that we're going to highlight today at the end of the show. We always play you a little cue. This is going to be the Contemporary Drama Toolkit Package. Now, this package is broadcast ready, and uh, it's designed to help you score picture in an instant, helping you draw out the emotion of a scene. It offers strings, textures, synths, leads, pads, guitars, and basses. It has quickly become one of Spitfire Audio's best-selling libraries, and you can save 25% right now if it's uh, your first purchase of Spitfire um, on that and many other packages using that promo code. Once again, Carol, what is it? Thank you. You're muted. Oh, I was muted. Score 2021. That's it. Score 2021. Go to the website. I just felt it was very dramatic. Very dramatic kind Sorry, of. Sorry, I was zoning out. I saw a bird flying a by bird. my it's window. It's like squirrel. Um, that drama toolkit sounds like something I actually... Hey, Spitfire, any, any, what's the bro deal? I think I'm going to take a look at that because that sounds like everything you would need Yeah. to score a motion picture. All you have to do is know how to compose music. Other than that, Spitfire will tune you up. They will hook it up. Um, before we get to our interview with uh, James Newton Howard, Robert, I know um, you've been watching some new things that uh, you might even be having some people on more score to talk about, which, by the way, we have one episode left after today's episode. Our season finale is two weeks from today. Really excited about our guest. We'll announce uh, our guest next week on our social channels. So be sure to be following uh, at score the podcast and at score movie if uh, you're not on there. Yet, I don't know what you're doing, um, but more score is what we're talking about. It's year-round, so when our season ends, more score continues. Um, we're always churning out some new content, uh, exclusive interviews. You and Matt did a fun uh, music video review thing that uh, I'm going to take part in now that I'm all moved in and my studio's put together, but that, that seemed like it was pretty fun. I listened, and it's I wanted to join so it. fun, looking at all these great old music videos and talking through them and and sharing our, stories. I didn't realize how connected you were with a lot of these music videos from those eras. Dude, I am so in the mix. It's frightening. And speaking of which, coming up on More Score and being in the mix, I do have some really interesting guests coming on. I'm going to talk to some of the coolest new composers nice. that we're hearing from. There's one that I want to talk to, and I'm going to try and get in contact. I just watched Candyman. You're and, so lucky um, and so brave. Oh my god. It was great. It was great. I'm I think I've said this before like scary movies often are kind of cheesy for me and it doesn't really um there, there have been a, a few good series and uh and and films from Mike Flanagan particularly and the Newton Brothers which yep. really got me back into like checking out horror. And um this Candyman, it's a Jordan Peele script um and it's it's great. It it, it was a fun watch. It was a little gory, a little nutty, and as you would expect from Jordan Peele's writing, um, but a lot of fun. And the music was trippy and such a cool score. 
Um, go ahead and check that out, and um, I hope to get uh, the composer on soon. Um, what the show you've been watching on HBO that you're super excited about? Well, of course, everybody's watching White Lotus and freaking out about the composer Christian Tapia Van Deer, and uh, he may be a surprise guest. I'm just saying, I'm not gonna <laughs> give anything away, but wow, what a right score! Now? What a score for that show. So I've been watching that. I just finished Hit and Run um, with my favorite, Lior Raz, who did Fauda. And all I can say about Hit and Run, I could say a lot about Hit and Run, but I hope they're sending a portion of a royalty check to Michael Abels every single week because, boy, did his score for us influence contemporary film scoring. Yeah. It's really, you hear it, and uh, it's a little scary how it's sort of, I know this approach to film scoring from us. Boom, 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 It's like, Slowing wow. down some scary pop yep. songs. And, so I think um, we're ready by to the, rock. By the way, the composer, the composer for Candyman, I didn't have it here, uh, Robert Ike Aubrey Lowe, who's yep. also, um, I found it really interesting that he used uh, Hildur Goodnadoter. Uh, for the cello, uh, I don't know if you call it notes because they're shredded and creepy and scary. Um, but he was in that that camp with Hilder and Johan Johansson. Um, so I would love to talk with him, Robert. If you're listening, we're getting in touch with you. Um, Thank you. I am listening. And then, but but before we get to James Newton Howard, I just want to say something really quick, guys. Uh, last year on this date, um, we lost my dad, and uh, I haven't really talked about it on the show, but he was a real real influence on me starting this. And when we first started, he would listen and give me advice on interviewing and we're always still learning. And, and, you know, it's, I just wanted to say that I, I, I dedicate this season to him and, uh, you know, I, sorry, I wasn't trying to get emotional here, but I haven't really talked about it. And, um, I think when we talked to Bear McCreary and his story about Elmer Bernstein, he had mentioned, like, don't withhold good news. Tell the people that you respect and that uh, motivate you how much they mean to you because you never know when you're going to lose them. So if you have somebody that you look up to in this industry or a creative person or in, in, any, in, any, in any field, just tell them. Tell them what they mean to you and what they, we've, they've done for you. Uh, my dad was a big supporter of, of us doing this and, and a big motivator for me and in, in setting all this up and making sure everything sounds right. And this was his original Shure SM7 microphone. Uh, it's from the 80s. It's in pristine condition. And uh, I swapped it out this season to kind of keep him with me on the show. And um, so just want to say, love you, dad. Thanks for, uh, for everything. And if you're listening to this, uh, this season is dedicated to you. Really appreciate that, Kenny, and I know how much he meant to you, and I know that he yeah. was a, a radio legend, and you, yeah. you're carrying on the tradition, so no greater honor than to carry it forward, and to have that microphone, that's yeah. just beautiful. That's just I've also great. got his, in, this, in the background here, K-Dave, Dave Holmes is his name, um, but he had his own internet radio station for a long time, and uh, was able to, it still works, I could fire it up, but it would probably blast the uh the lens out on this camera oh um, wow but yeah no he lives on and and doing this radio type thing and podcasting interviewing thing is just it's all him it's uh, so, so great and it um, is important to acknowledge those we love every yep. day so 100%. on that note i would like to say and unabashedly 
I love James Newton Howard. Same. As a dude, he's a stellar guy, but as a composer, he, I said this the first time, he combines virtually every aspect of film composition that I love. He's contemporary, he's orchestral, he can be funky, he can be pop, and he's always narratively totally in tune with the story. So one of my favorites coming up. And what we learned, too, is he can collaborate with Metallica. And he rocks on with Metallica, which is too cool. (laughs) Yeah. So, uh, yeah, we're going to take a quick break. Thank you guys so much for being with us this season. Again, one episode left two weeks from today, and then we continue on on More Score. Go to patreon.com slash more score right now and sign up, and we'll see you over there right after the break. We're joined by James Newton Howard. Stick around. We'll be right back. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hey guys, it's good to see you. I wanted to tell you about this thing called More Score. Have you heard about this? I have heard about it because, but that's because I read everything. So I mean, there's very little. I've it gets heard printed about. daily, and I'm on and, it, uh, delivered to your front doorstep. Yes. yes, more score is what it is. It's it's our new Patreon show, and all of our listeners can go check it out. We're putting out episodes all the time, and you're probably wondering what's Patreon. Have you heard I of am. Patreon Could you before? tell me? Uh, I'd be I'd be delighted to tell you. Patreon is a website where our fans basically can crowdfund and tell us the type of content that they would like us to be able to go produce. So we've been going out and doing interviews with people. Um, obviously, we've we've interviewed you both directly there and a little bit about your lives and, and the people who you've crossed paths with, but also um, Carlos Rafael Rivera the, of uh, the Queen's Gambit on Netflix and uh, the guys from Cobra Kai, which it was kind of cool. We found out that um, when we recorded with Chris Beck for uh, score a film music documentary, those guys were just getting coffee. They might've offered us. I think uh, Zach uh, said they did. did I think. And it was great Mm -hmm. coffee, which was a great sign for their futures. Yes. I remember that. And I, he, he actually told me, his career has been completely downhill since that moment. <laughs> but that Well, that offering... wasn't in the interview, so it doesn't count. If ah, he said anything darn. of the sort, then uh, it wasn't on the record. Okay, Zach, but, sorry, uh, man. But we're putting these episodes out all the time, More Score. How do you get to it? You can go to patreon.com slash more score um, or download the Patreon app and search More Score. Oh, of course, here's my alarm going off right as we're recording this. That's because uh, it's so exciting. It's, you've like set the alarm off. You, th- this is like these little reads that we're doing right now for more score are, we're going to do a couple of them and our listeners can collect them all. If they aren't hitting that little 15, you should make an button, NFT might... out of them. Yeah. It, there's... I was going to say you can make a non fungible <laughs> token out of a more score read. Yeah, we could do that. We do have an or official not. season, uh, season four 
score the podcast NFT that's now Ooh. available. We have one for each season, not for each episode, but for each season. So if anyone out there, Heavy. but uh the we're getting off track more score is on patreon it's uh you can go to it patreon.com slash more score we're putting out episodes all the time and it's extra stuff it's stuff you won't hear on score the podcast access to different people interesting voices um and for your support we have these perks too so you can get a, a pretty cool little collector's t-shirt that we're putting out now um this coffee mm -hmm. mug that's pretty cool uh has all the kind of our, our instrument orchestra instrument look on it it's pretty cool stuff so uh you can support us there patreon.com slash more score hey this is michael abels you're listening to score the podcast now back to the show Welcome back to Score the Podcast, presented by Spitfire Audio. On our show today, he's a nine-time Oscar-nominated composer. His most recent films include News of the World, which was Oscar-nominated, Raya the and the Lost Dragon, and Jungle Cruise. Please welcome back to the show our good friend James Newton Howard. Good morning, James. Howdy. James, I liked, first of all, I love having you on the show, of course, and just what a great opportunity to hang with you, and I think that talking about sleep would be a really great uh, topic in general. He said that sometimes you've had trouble sleeping. I do too, but mine is because I have very, very vivid dreams. Are you a, uh, do you dream vividly? I do. Um, <clears throat> I go through cycles, I think, but I think mine um, has to do with uh, maturing, shall we say. I think as one matures, as one gets older, and I just celebrated my 70th birthday, um, sleep becomes a different kind of thing. And that's fine. I can be, I can read more now because I don't. Oh. It takes me hours to fall asleep. So That's nice. And you don't fall asleep while you're reading? That doesn't make your eyes get sleepy? Well, I think I do. And then I turn off the light and I lay down and then I don't. So I turn the light back on and, you know, it's really boring. But you know, I guess I would wonder is... Does your work creep into your lying awake? Do you yeah. find yourself thinking about cues or nervous about getting something done on time? Well, I don't worry so much about getting things. Well, that's not true. There was a period of time earlier this year where I was extremely worried about getting things done on time. But, you know, as Hans Zimmer pointed out to me, um, it always works out. And his famous quote to me when... We hadn't started started orchestrating yet for Batman Begins, and it was four days away from our first uh, first recording session. Um, he's, we have plenty of time, so <laughs> that's what I just have to remind myself. Do you have those? Like I have the the recurring dream of showing up to school and I didn't have my homework done or the big test I didn't study for it. Do you have those moments at all in your dreams where you're you're on the stage and you don't have your sheet music or something like that? Yeah, like I'm going to, you know, perform Brahms second and uh, I can't really play the piano that well or I'm supposed to conduct and I don't have any pants on or, you know, this kind of stuff. So What do you think funny, that Mike? is? I wonder why and, and it it obviously taps into whatever your your history is or something in your past. But what, what do you suppose is is drawing that kind of stuff out, do you think? I think that it's a very intimate thing to uh, compose music or to perform to to expose your inner self innermost self uh to the public and you know it's it's risky it's taking a chance it can be 
I guess it could be humiliating or embarrassing or, I don't know, the, the opportunity for failure is immense. Um, so I worry about it. And it doesn't seem like it ever goes away either. Not so much. That's what's so interesting is you, of all people, worrying about it. Hans did, I once heard him say that that first moment of playing something original for a director is, uh, as it sort of became clear. I mean, you can't assume, here's a great composer with a lot of experience. The director's just going to be instantly overwhelmed and hit his knees and say, bless you. Hans said, you really expose yourself, of course, in every way, and you do risk failure. It's hard for me, though. I've been listening. I mean, I've had a week of listening to James Newton Howard, which has been really delicious because it's such an opus. You really have created a magnificent body of work. Even just listening to the most recent work, the variety is huge. And I think that's something that is unique. There isn't a, well, this is obviously James Newton Howard. In fact, it's, my God, you've just gone from Southeast Asia to the American West, and it's the same composer. And I I, I guess my, my question is, do you feel like an actor sometimes that you are going to adopt the character of the film and and that's your job. Um, yes, I think that I think whether you use the word character, tone, um, whatever the individual thumbprint signature of that movie that you're trying to compose music for is the most elusive thing. And I, hmm. um, <clears throat> I think that it's a question of ultimately making sure you're. Telling the same story that the director is trying to tell. Oh man, that's perfect. <clears throat> and that's you know that I've learned to, <clears throat> excuse me, be more <clears throat> open-minded. Sorry, froggy this morning. <laughs> open-minded about that and um, willing to listen more and collaborate more with the director as regards what the intention was when this particular scene was shot or this scene was shot or what this character is about and what threatens this relationship and all those kinds of things really add up their little bits and their little revelations, but can they're, they add up to a big idea. And the big idea is everybody's working in a cohesive way um, to create a, a beautiful film that has everybody, you know, firing on all cylinders. So I, I guess it's about, Immerse, immersion in the movie mm. for me. Um, it takes a while for me, even though I've had situations where I have to compose very quickly and every film composer does. It's certainly not my preferred um, situ- context to work in at all. Uh, because I think, when I think about the number of films that I worked on for an extended period of time, like a year, year and a half, and I'm grateful that I was able to do that because I figured out a lot of stuff in the last six months that I didn't know in the first year. Mm-hmm. And that sounds crazy and sadistic self is like masochistic, but <clears throat> it's really true. I love hearing you say that you're, you've learned to become more open and listen more. That's such a, uh, 
indication of your own self dis- continuing self discovery is there anything that makes you realize that that has evolved for you i mean is there an experience recently where you said maybe i need to listen more or i now see i'm more open than i used to be yeah i think my just overall my relationship to filmmakers <clears throat> is much more collaborative hmm. um it's still terrifying when you play a, a big main title or something for the director the first time and he or she is going to respond to that and you know you're just hoping hoping against all hope and odds and fear that it's going to be as well received as you think it should be and oftentimes it's not and when it's not you know i used to feel like killing the the director or killing myself or it was just really traumatic and it's not so much anymore you know i i i know there's always going to be another idea i'll have and the problem is what i decided that my resistance to rewriting was basically founded uh in the uh in the be- behavior i was exhibiting which was essentially laziness that okay I don't want to get myself back up to that fevered pitch emotionally and be as invested in this cue as I was the first time. I'm not sure I can get there again. Of course I can get there again. It just requires a huge amount of effort. And once I get there again, oftentimes I, I write a better one. So it's not as it's not as scary as it used to be in that regard. I, I treasure that insight. I really do. Yeah. I, I, I think that it's important to hear. It is. I think on any level of creativity. Yeah. Artists that acknowledge that rewriting is hard or harder than writing have really had the experience because, yeah, there's something great about the first inspiration and you rock it out and this is great, right? And somebody goes, I'm not sure about this part and this part. Yeah. It's, it sucks terribly. It sucks. <laughs> it just does. But, um, you know, it's, uh, I think that, it, you, you, as you said, rewriting is harder than writing, and, and the, the sad thing is, or the, the scary thing is, you're going to spend most of your time rewriting. You know, anybody can write, and I think Alan Bergman said that to me. It's, it's the rewriting that is, separates the men from the boys, the girls from the women, however, I don't want to sound chauvinistic. Well, I think, I think you're actually saying also that it separates the experienced from the inexperienced. Yeah, because indeed. The it takes a certain amount of stamina, and s- what you're just saying, I think, is really I've never heard it said that well. Which is that you're not a failure and a loss. What are you doing? The first thing you're doing is showing a director one idea that's your first idea for how that could go. It's not I've just written it. See ya. We'll, I'll see you at the finish line. And to be open is great. Well, <clears throat> yes, and you have to think about. <clears throat> excuse me, how difficult it can be in certain situations. Like, um, I just presented David Yates with the first six reels of Fantastic Beasts 3. Mm. So I've been working on on the material I just sh- showed him for four months. So it wasn't like, oh, I started the movie last week, here's my first ideas. No, these are ideas that I've been shaping uh, close to two hours of music that I sent him. And um, there's a whole bunch of notes, and it's okay. I'm I'm okay with that because it's a 
how can you expect a director who's listening to a temp score for months in their movie to immediately uh, embrace this brand new bunch of music from the composer? I mean, it's just, it's, it's not human nature to be able to do that. Um, so I expect, I won't call it resistance, but I expect it to be a, a conversation. And David's notes are extremely clear, and I can't argue with them because I get it. You know, it'll be like, hmm, this is re- you're missing this point, or you're missing, this is a thread that really matters in the story. This is something that is ultimately the most important idea. And I don't feel like we're, uh, you know, really uh, underscoring that in the way we should be. So, you know, these kinds of things. And, and you know, they point out, he, David or other, any other director who's really who really knows what they want to do will point out things that I missed. You know, as much as, <laughs> as smart as I like to think I am and as intuitive as I think I am, um, I need help. And from your perspective, does it does it get easier each time you go through this to figure out if if you didn't meet what the director's looking for, if they're not musical, how, how to ask those questions? Like, what, do you have a list of questions? Do you do you have a way of trying to pry out of them what they want if they're not musical? Because that seems like it, it'd be really hard to do. Um, but and it's different every time, right? Unless it's the same director over and over, but you're working with a wide array of directors. Well, first of all, I have a shorthand now with David, and he's very clear, so I, I'm. Oh, it's always pretty easy to know what he's talking about. But you have to remember, very few directors speak the musical language. I mean, and if they do, you kind of wish they didn't, because sometimes it gets in the way of, of talking about what really matters, which is what you're supposed to be feeling what you're supposed to be doing here, uh, what's supposed to be happening in the storytelling. So I find I don't usually have a hard time understanding what a director wants. Um, I think a picture is worth a thousand words, and I'll just rewrite it, say, what about this? And then we kind of go back and forth, and we figure it out. Again, it's down to not being lazy. Yeah. Um, when we first had you on on the show, uh, our format was a little bit different, and we didn't we didn't dive too much into your backstory, but um, we'd love to hear about just where you grew up and, and how you got started into music in general. Um, wh- where were you born? I was born here in Los Angeles at Queen of Angels Hospital off the Hollywood Freeway. I think it's now, it became a Scientology Center or something. <laughs> nice. Um, I grew up in Hawthorne, Gardena, Torrance, South Bay Area. I went to, away to a boarding school in Ojai on a music scholarship that my piano teacher taught somebody but we had a little piano at my house my grandmother was a violinist uh, she mm. was not a concert master and she did not play with the Pittsburgh Symphony I say that because somehow or another that's become some urban mythology around my story <laughs> so she just played the violin but she um, kept a little upright piano at our house and um, even though I'm my father was Jewish he didn't want us to know he was Jewish, evidently. He changed his name from Horowitz to Howard. And so I was going to a, like a, you know, uh, Presbyterian Sunday school when I was two and three years old. And I remember those songs. I, I, you know, 
Jesus loves me, yes I know, for the Bible tells me so, and onward Christian soldiers. And a lot of this this sort of Presbyterian religious service music, um, I would come home and pick it out on the piano when I was, you know, I guess three, just, you know, one finger. And my grandmother kind of lit up, and she was cooking at the time for... Well, she cooked for Cole Porter, for Edward G. Robinson, for Jack Benny. For She was amazing. And I think she kept getting fired because she drank too much. But she mm-hmm. did, at one of these uh, people's employers' houses, um, she mentioned that she had a grandson that she thought was... Anyway, long story short, That's I started piano story. lesson, went off to uh, high school, got a full piano performance scholarship at USC, Wow! And quit quit after about three months because I uh, I was tired of practicing the piano and I wasn't that good. Uh, I knew I was nowhere near good enough to be, you know, a concert pianist. Um, and I was too attracted to popular music, so I dropped out of college. I was um, truly kind of lost in the wilderness. I I, I had a job uh, lubricating injection molding machines and stuffing pillows and a drill press operator all of which uh, i was not very good at was it a hard decision for you to quit school no oh my god no it was i couldn't you know i was very i was in tremendous emotional turmoil when i was Mm. a young young person because i think sometimes that may be an easy situation for you to to make that decision but there's always like what are my parents going to think? What are people going to think? And sometimes that can be a stronger influence than like your own personal decision making there. Well, yeah, I'm sure. But, you know, I was the first person in my family to ever go to college. And hmm. um, by then, my father had died when I was quite young in a car accident. My mother just said, are you sure, Jim, you want to do that? And I said, yeah, I'm sure. And then I... um there was really no more discussion about it. my parents really didn't have much of a much sway over me hmm. um ended up getting in a rock and roll band that's a whole other story i'll spare you um, mama lion gosh mama lion um learned about the recording studio a little bit uh through a bunch of kind of cinderella crazy story uh circumstances um i joined elton john's band in 1975 hmm. um it's funny, one of my first sessions ever was in 1974 for Ringo's album, Goodnight Vienna. Wow. And there was a, there was a song on there called Snookeroo that Elton wrote, and Elton was playing piano. And I remember Richard Perry was producing, Bill Schnee was engineering. I had worked on my first wife's album. She was in a band called Fanny uh, on Warner Brothers, an all-girl band, and they were pretty great. Um, so I'm, I got asked to come and play, you know, do some ARP synthesizer on Ringo's thing. And, and one of the things I worked on was this song, Snookeroo. And I heard Elton count it off. One, two, three. And I just, you know, sent goosebumps just hearing him count it off. And I just realized, I was looking at the credits, that less than a year later, I was in Elton's band. Which, what? How did I, you know, it was, wow. it still remains, in fact, I even sent Elton I said, I, I don't know if I ever shared with you that I played on Snookeroo as one of my first. So anyway, ended up with Elton, came back, um, left the band. Uh, uh, Elton gave me the opportunity to really be seen 
and um, I did some string work, orchestrations with him, and then I started getting asked to do it in town here with Barbara Streisand and Earth, Wind & Fire and Toto and Olivia Newton-John and all kinds of people. Wow. And then I started producing some records, um, producing them with Ricky Lee back, Ricky Lee Jones in, mm. I think, 83. Um, did Worked with a bunch of R&B acts. We worked with uh, Earth, Wind & Fire, Brothers Johnson, Shaka Khan. I really loved R&B a lot. And then at some point, somebody, one of the string players, I think it was Sid Sharp, who used to be the oh great yeah the concert master of, of L.A. Session. He says, James, why aren't you writing TV or doing a movie? And I, I had no desire because I was terrified of the idea. And soon after, I was offered a movie, and I turned it down because I just I don't know how to write a movie. Hmm. And they came back at me a couple more times, and I said yes. And um, so I did that movie. That was called Head Office. It was my what, first what, movie ever. Real quick, what made you say yes? It, it, you Obviously, you didn't learn how to make or write uh, movie music in that period with, between the first time you said no and now. So what made you finally say yes? What pushed you over the edge? Uh, you know, some remote part of my brain that thought maybe I was capable of something bigger than what I was doing. I don't know. But I did it, and the moment I did it, I I was good at it, and I really liked it. And then I really loved it, and then I couldn't wait to do it again. And I was just extremely lucky and have remained very lucky that I kept getting opportunities to get better and do it again and yeah uh so that's it and here what I am. was next after head office i'm curious what was how and how long between head office and somebody saying the guy's actually good let's give him another shot um head office first and then you know i was married to rosanna arcat for a while mm -hmm. um and who who i love and adore but we're much happier not being married but um, she was doing a movie with Hal Ashby called Eight Million Ways to Die. Mm -hmm. And um, she said to Hal, uh, you should use my boy. I think we weren't married then. My boyfriend, this guy, James Newton Howard. And Hal was such a cool guy. I said, yeah, okay. Um, and I did that movie, which I did not do a good job in that movie. I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. I just didn't. I just didn't write. I just wasn't that good. It took a long time to get better. And then I got a job. You remember Hawk Walensky, of course, of course. Uh, who was the keyboard player and wrote um, Ain't Nobody. Yes. And, he, yeah. It was really cool to have a white kind of hipster. Funky one guy. Of the funkiest, coolest tracks with JR playing that kick drum. Ain't dun, Nobody. So Hawk, yeah. I, I played on that record. Um, wow, one of my favorite records. A little bit, yeah, a tiny little part you won't remember. A little comes some synth strings and whatever, but we got offered, Joel Sill offered us this movie, Wildcats, hmm. uh, with Goldie Hawn. And um, so we did, we worked together on that, and it's, it was directed by a guy named Michael Ritchie. And hmm. at some point, Michael, I, I, did, I still didn't know anything about anything. He asked me... Um, what we were going to use for a temp score. And I, I asked him, what is a temp score? And he decided then I should be fired. So uh, I, I said, what do you mean fired? And I, I called Goldie because I, I, or I wrote, Go I don't know how, we didn't have email back then, but I, 
contacted Goldie, who seemed really nice and friendly, and I said, he wants to, the director wants to fire me. Can I have another chance? And she talked Michael into giving me a week. And I wrote like 10 cues in a week, put them in the movie, and kept my job. But, you know, that's the kind of stuff. That was a big growing moment for me. Hawk was great. Um, we wrote a bunch of songs. Not very good, but we did our best. They were okay. Um, the movie was not a success. And then from then on, I just started getting movies. I'm wondering though, when you, when you talked about getting head office and, and first starting out, this is, you know, there aren't film scoring classes. It doesn't sound like you interned under anybody. So were you opening the dreaded Newtson book? Like, how were you learning the process? So we, we hear about the Newtson book from a lot of composers on their first film. Um, but like, what, what made you comfortable with jumping into the, just the workflow of things? Because obviously you have the, the music chops, but that's a whole different world of putting it all together. I don't know what the Newtson book is. I oh, didn't. Great. Uh, I just started writing, and there was no Simpty. There was no... I did it all. My first stuff was I had to play live, and then I used a Lin 9000 mm -hmm. and a three-quarter-inch tape machine. There was no MIDI. Um, you just... I would count, you know, one, two, three, four, and start my drum machine and the video at the same time. So every time I laid it down, it was slightly different. But um, I just kind of had a good instinct, you know, and I, I still believe that, that that without that, you can only be so good. I think you can learn a lot of do's and don'ts, but in terms of really, you know, being a significant contributor to the world of film music i think you really need to know what the music's supposed to feel like know have some kind of sense that can't be taught i believe it's a that. real talent to have that it can't be discounted yeah. I, I think that having the storytelling tonal instinct for a film is very different from just being a musician and uh it's something that i learned of course to have huge respect for those that had that in addition to their musicality their storytelling skills and chops um and you you kind of graced over you and hawk wrote songs i mean i remember you one fine day we had that picture at fox george clooney and michelle pfeiffer and uh there was a song needed for the end you came up with or you and judd friedman came up with for the first time the music supervisor who shall remain unnamed brought me the song and said this is crap <laughs> and and i remember i remember kind of nudging her it's not we the first time my music's been called crap so right she surprising. said this is crap and then it won the grammy won the golden globe <laughs> nominated for an academy award and i always had to don't forget myself. about Alan Rich. Oh, and Alan Rich was part of it, right? Judd and Alan yep. and you. And Kenny Loggins cut it. Yep. And it's a huge song and a wonderful song. But it makes me wonder, because you've had other songs. You wrote The Hanging Tree with Jennifer Lawrence. I Yeah, I wrote. Sang. Uh, yes. Uh, I mean. I didn't write. Uh, let me clarify that just for the record. The Hanging Tree was written, the melody and the lyrics were written by the guy, guys, and what is that band? Gosh darn it. Never mind. It's my 70-year-old brain. I can't remember. Okay. But they're quite a successful. I just took her solo vocal and turned it into what it was. So I, 
Yes, I, I wrote part of it and I created it, but I didn't write the lyrics or the melody. But I think um, that's wonderful to know, and it's unbelievable how these stories evolve. As you research James Newton Howard, you hear his grandmother was the first violinist in the Pittsburgh <laughs> Symphony, and he composed the Hanging We squashed tree, that. It's all, it's, it's so all it's clear now. To, it's good to, you know, we need to go back to Wikipedia, I think. Yeah. But the songwriting uh, exercise, I, I'm, I have a million questions because I love songwriting, and you are fluid in both, but you didn't, most people who are fluid in one or the other, I can think of many composers who sort of say, I'm not really a songwriter. They, they shy away. Or many songwriters who, of course, say, I don't really do film scores. I'll write the song. You're fluid in both. Do you mm -hmm. have an, no, I can't, I can't accept that. Uh, no, I'm no, you, uh, you're modest. Uh, well, I'm honest. I mean, <laughs> a great songwriter is a, wow, that's a different animal. And I mean, when, you know, when you say songwriter, I think about a lot of people. I mean, I have been lucky and I've, and I've written a few, somewhat well-known songs in collaboration yes. with other people. Um, I have a good melody sense, um, but that's it. I, I, I don't consider myself a songwriter. I don't. I just have too much respect for the art form. In the same way, I don't consider myself a conductor. I consider myself a stick waver because a real <laughs> conductor is a whole different deal. Can so. I ask about another gig in that field? Because something else that you do effortlessly, how about, which I assume the answer is yes, so I'm going to preface it that way. How about a producer? Well, Record producer and score producer. Yeah, I mean, there was a period of time where I really was interested in doing that and working with you know artists and helping them realize their vision but i think today a producer is a different is a different job i mean now it's almost always a producer is the songwriter or one of the songwriters the engineer the programmer the creates these tracks you know and creates this world for the, in collaboration with the artist that it's very different back i mean i was good and i still feel good at you know getting a group of people to perform um, accurately what the music is supposed to be. Like, I'm very good at that. I'm very communicative on a stage with, with 100 musicians. Um, I haven't... Yeah, and I and I, you put five people in a room, like what the way we used to do it, bass, drums, keyboard, and two guitar players or something, and I can do a good job of that. But I don't know. I think I'm just out of the loop now in terms of what record production is. And I hear a lot of things now that to me, the songs oftentimes are, are maybe disappointing in terms of their uh, content, but the production is insane. <laughs> you know, I hear a lot of that. And then there's also people that obviously are doing great stuff, but do you dabble in pop at all? Like, have you produced a record any time in the last I don't know, decade. Quarter century. <laughs> um, <clears throat> Has anyone not, asked you and you turned it down, or do you just not even, is that not a call you take? <clears throat> I wouldn't say I wouldn't take it. I mean, I guess the closest thing I did, well, Hanging Tree was one of them, but then I, you know, I work, work with Rick Rubin on Josh Groban's album. Mm. And um, 
a couple of albums ago, and that was really educational. I think I was trying to, you know, bridge the, I, I knew what Rick was trying to do with Josh and what Josh wanted to do with Rick, and I was kind of an intermediary. I worked on about six songs or something. Um, but Rick was the producer, per se. Um, mm. But somebody like Josh or somebody who, I don't know, somebody who is so incredibly musical as that in a more traditional sense, I'd be more inclined to work with. And also, doing vocals with Josh is insanely easy. And I used to really not enjoy doing vocals because, you know, you're sitting there doing 20 takes and then comping every syllable. And so I, I just, I'm not the He's guy. He's just on it. <laughs> and, you know, yeah. <clears throat> you mentioned the, um, I never thought of this, and I don't know if this is obvious to everyone else, but you mentioned the playing those Presbyterian hymns, as you called them. When I listened to News of the World this week, there you go. I thought, I thought this is like it's kind of singing. It's kind of Aaron Copeland, kind of, kind of Americana. But no, actually, it's almost it's like white gospel. I was trying to figure out what it was in those chords that plain song. It was, and I wonder. Am, did I just find out? that that came through you, your three-year-old self playing those Jesus Loves Me hymns in News of the World, because that score, which is magnificent. Oh, my oh, God. God, I loved it. I James, by the way, are you, you're like getting better every score, and yes, every time I hear your, your scores, in the, especially in the last few years, I'm like, holy crap. Oh, thank you. <laughs> your, you know, your stuff is just yes. elite. It's thank so you. good. You know, more than Jesus Loves Me, <clears throat> the song that came to mind to me when I was working on that is, Holy, 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 da, 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 something like that. Yeah, exactly. What key, Carol? Uh, e flat. D Do you have perfect? Major. Yeah. Ah, you're, see, my perfect pitch has gone a half step off. No way. <laughs> yes, it has. Yeah. And I talked to David Foster, same thing happened How to him. How is that possible? It is possible in him. Um, mm. I don't know if I'm ready for it, but So it is, this, is this a D? Boo, boo. Ba, ba. Yeah, D major. <laughs> but what, the holy, to, holy, holy. I'm going to go with Carol on that one because oh, my, yeah. I'm off. But anyway, the chord, the harmonic structure of one of those things is is much more, um, yeah, all of those things are just, you know, to me, it's easy to go from those into Beethoven. You know, Beethoven is just rooted in these just powerful chords and, and very moving harmonies. And so, yeah. That score uses i mean we were listening to it and the beauty of it it's a combination of orchestral and also i couldn't identify i mean was it dulcimers or banjos or there's some kind of fragile string feeling a what were those instruments because i'd like to know and i couldn't find out what they were they're just kind of authentic and i thought it's probably just obvious mandolins whatever it is but if you recorded those during the pandemic, did you have to go solo with those players? 
Well, we managed to record that score in London remotely. I was here, oh, nice. and yeah. um, I think Abbey Road had just opened up, and they would allow 40 musicians in there at a time. Um, I worked with a great engineer over there, a guy named Jonathan Allen, who, hmm. you know, it was the early days of trying to record an orchestra where the, the separation between musicians was big. And how was that going to impact the sound? And he did a brilliant job. You know, we doubled a lot of things. and But a lot of those instruments um, are like old, like ancient instruments, viola da gambas, uh, cello de mores, certainly some gut string fiddles and um, acoustic guitars and a little bit of banjo and a little bit of mandolin. But I found that, and I still believe this, that, you know, there, there, I didn't want to overdo it. You know, I, I didn't want to, I don't know. I, I thought, I thought a, a light touch as regards those instruments was going to work. Um, so I think there's only two cues with banjo. Um, there might be one other one. Um, I just, you know, it was that stuff just stuck to that movie visually so brilliantly. Um, that, yeah, really it just seemed you kind of obvious. touch because my memory, it's almost like some spice that you just use a little bit of. Yeah. And then your memory of the dish is, oh, there, I love that curry dish, but it was, you just use this because my memory of the score is orchestral with these authentic Americana. And now to find out, were they Brits playing them? Well, listen, American folk music is all rooted in, you know. It's Celtic kind Celtic, of. Celtic. Yeah. yeah it, it all came from there. So I think. Uh, they were all Brits. They nice. were all Brits. How um, when you you're? Do, oh, go ahead, Robert. I was just going to say those dates. Do you do them where you those kind of things that we've done where you get up at two a.m. and you make yourself breakfast and there's it's ten o'clock in London and you have to do it on their schedule. Well, we they they, they were very sweet. I think I had to be. We started at six. So okay, a.m. my time. So it wasn't right. too bad. Yeah. When you're doing a film, um, obviously. Each film is in a different period of time. Sometimes they're, uh, you know, on the other side of the world. You may not be an expert in every type of instrument. How much time do you spend researching and and maybe getting consultants for for some of these instruments and and you know just music history in general? Like you you came from the pop world and came into this, so every time you make a, or take a film, you're probably thrown into a, a world that you may not be fully familiar with. Well, you know, I I did spend a lot of time in the pop world, but I really came from the classical world. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I love strings from the very beginning. You know, when I would listen, when I was five years old, I was listening to Rachmaninoff and Tchaikovsky. And um, by the way, I tried to indoctrinate my own children in that, and they, they just didn't want to know about it, which is fine. Mm. But, um, you know, very little. I would say, you know, I, I, I think most of the time composers have the opportunity to do a cliff notes version of research just because there just isn't a lot of time involved i do have amel richards the great amel richards um oh, uh, book yes his book on range his rangefinder book so i would consult that to say am i writing this instrument out of its range or but other than that i just kind of you know it's a hail mary i'll just play something i i, I create extremely elaborate demos which is a huge part of what i do um and i tell every young composer on earth 
get good at making a good demo. Um, that's number one important, in my opinion, because it's a sales job. You know, oh, you're, you're so selling, true. you're trying to sell what you've done to the director and to the studio. And if it sounds terrible, it's not going to work. So, um, to answer your question, uh, Kenny, I just, I kind of write what I hear and sometimes I, and I've never gotten good at, in my opinion, about writing trumpets. I, I mean, I listen to John Williams write trumpets and what he does brass is like listening to William Walton. It's unbelievable. And I feel very confident with strings and winds and I'm better now at brass, but you know, I always write my trumpets too high or I forget to use them in there's they're so versatile and um so yeah anyway it's so interesting because the trumpets and the brass in jungle cruise yeah i was gonna say you, you are almost you're... i hesitate to say <laughs> williams-esque and and the orchestral some of the exciting cues are really kind of in that zone and to hear that next to i don't know if it's raya or raya raya raya, raya. the last dragon which I has, said lost earlier, by the way. It's last. My apologies. Well, the dragon and got lost. By the way, that, yeah. that film begins right out of the gate with music. For I was trying to figure out when it stopped, but when you guys sat down for, for Raya, um, what, a, what a unique animation style um, going from sort of this 2D to 3D when she's dreaming and, and that sort of and thinking. Um, but w what were the discussions about using music in that film and it's it's really really musical right out of the gate well thank you um thank you for that uh you know i love uh doing animated movies i you know i hadn't been asked to do one in a long time i think um i guess you know what was the last one i did was it space jam which was kind of an animated movie <laughs> um which, which has been was, resurrected in a way. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I did, you know, three at Disney right in a row that were not successful. Dinosaur, Treasure Planet, and uh, Atlantis, The Lost Continent. And those are all big orchestral scores that I think there was the last gasps of 2D animation pretty much. Although mm. Dinosaur was kind of one of the early three, you know, different kinds. But I think maybe the perception was um, that I had a negative association with animation. But... Um, I really do enjoy it. I love the process. I love the filmmakers. Their, their agenda is so pure. They've been, they've all been in little closets looking at computers, especially during COVID for years, just getting the movie up and ready to go. And then they finally are at the point where they're collaborating with a composer. Um, they made it very clear that they wanted, they didn't want just a traditional orchestration kind of idea or orchestral score, but you know they wanted to incorporate some more contemporary electronics and things like that, and um, kind of a non-specific Southeast Asian feel. Um, you know, there were just these different things, and it's kind it's of got action in it, uh, which I wasn't expecting. There's fight big scenes. Action. I mean. Yeah, it's it's really Big what intense. a fun score for you because there's there's a little bit of everything in there and when you click on Disney Plus and click Raya and the Lost Dra or Last Dragon, you're not expecting these these incredible fight scenes which are so musical. Thank you. No, it was um we recorded that here um 
post, well, not post, right in the middle of COVID when Sony opened up just enough to do that, to do that, that score. We, again, we only had like 40 people in there. Everybody had to be tested. We mm-hmm. doubled a lot of stuff. Um, but the funny thing is Jungle Cruise, I recorded at Sony with full band, um, which was such a pleasure because I hadn't worked in LA with a large orchestra for a long time. I'd been uh, exiled to London for a number of years and man, the orchestra here just tore it up. And then, you know, that was literally, literally, let's see, that was the end of February. So two weeks later was Black Friday when it all yeah. just all, all came undone. So, yeah. Amazing. With, with Jungle stuff. Cruise, um, first off, did you get to meet The Rock? No. <laughs> and he you gave me a nice shout out on Twitter, which was really cool. Oh, that's cool. I saw that. He's a cool guy, I'm sure. And I, I really hoped one day he would show up, but he didn't. Well, he's going to see this. We're going to make sure of it. And he's going to come over to your studio and apologize profusely. <laughs> he's a musician, you know. He can, he can play his guitar and sings. Is he really? I did yeah. not know that. Yeah, he is. This is, you know, this, I think we have a news break here. <laughs> James Newton Howard producing The Rock. No, I heard um, there was a time where there was a song in Jungle Cruise at one point, and, uh, and um, Dwayne was singing it. And he's got a beautiful voice, which you can hear just yeah. in his talking voice. Um, yeah, and I, it didn't get used in the movie for whatever reason. Too bad. Metallica. One thing that instead. did get used, though, is you, you collaborated with Metallica, which is so cool. Um, Fun. And what, what a great arrangement. How did that idea come to fruition? Was that the director who wanted to do that? That actually came from Sean Bailey, who's the hmm. kind of head of Disney. And he is a huge Metallica fan. He's, by the way, always been one of my big supporters for which I am immensely grateful. And we've done nice. a lot of work together. And he was, he's very close to Lars. And, um, the drummer. Yeah, the drummer, Lars, Lars Ulrich. And um, so I met Lars. I went up to San Francisco and we hung out. It was total groove. It was great. <laughs> uh, such a cool guy. Such a wide-ranging intellect. Um, and uh, we started talking about doing this. And if, if you just distill that song um nothing else matters into its melody and chords it's quite beautiful it's quite a it's beautiful, a score it is it's got a kind of a spanish thing to it so it, as far as the conquistadors and the and the way that interacted with the story um so i i got it I, it made sense to me um naturally people are going to wonder why are they using a metallica song uh, lyrically it may not be totally on the nose but it worked, and um, it was an honor to work with those That's guys. Actually, what what I'm seeing on Twitter is the rumor that James Newton Howard is the newest member of Metallica <laughs> and is about to go out on tour. I'm not good enough, man. Have James you seen Hetfield. those guys play? I mean, they're awesome. Did they you are. go to S and I'm wondering. S and M two. What is that? When when they do the the symphony concert, they've done it twice now. The first one. Was oh, they with, did it with uh, Michael Tilson Thomas. Michael Kamen did it. In the Michael Kamen did the first one, yeah, because it, it's clear that they have a love for the orchestra as well. They do, and they're always looking for a different way to do what they do. And um, yeah, I think I made it clear that I'd love to do a concert with them, so maybe that'll happen sometime. Ooh. Cool. I, I think we have one. I, I'm just curious about one last thing, which is you told us earlier that after three months at 
in college, you just you bailed, and clearly that was a fabulous decision. Well, for look- me, it was a good decision in at that time. Okay, I don't. I think now it's a different deal. But anyway, okay. that's where I was actually about this. I saw that you have taught at the Royal Academy of Music. They made me an honorary member, which I was greatly. Uh, that's very appropriate and honorary. And I also saw the University of Miami, the Frost School. I spent a year there, yep. Super prestigious roles for you, professorially, and it just made me wonder, you kind of just answered it. If a student came to you today and said, Maestro, you dropped out after three months, and look at your career, one of the great careers in American music. Should I do the same? What would you say? I would say, no, you shouldn't do the same. Huh. Um, because the likelihood of succeeding as a film composer, it's tough. And in, if you don't succeed as a film composer, um, you might want to have a plan B. And I think that, I'm sorry to say that, but, you know, people do what they have to do. If they have a, a compulsion that they have to quit university and do something else and pursue a dream, who's to say don't do that? But overall, my, my general note would be, my situation was my situation, and I was very fortunate, and um, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't recommend that. Well, speaking of that, one of my dreams came true, which is I got a chance to work with James Newton Howard. <laughs> we worked together a lot. During my, I actually looked at the films, five of them, and um, some of them I thought, well, Volcano, I don't remember anything about Volcano. Was that Dante's <laughs> Peak? And then Dante's Peak, yeah. right? And the great uh, Roger Donaldson. French Kiss. French Kiss, yeah. Was a Fox movie. I was. I sort of thought, I don't remember any of these. I do remember and will always treasure Water for Elephants. Ah, uh, that was great. One of my favorite scores, and clearly you've gone on to, you had already worked with Francis Lawrence, but more and better things ahead and coming up. But um, I always just really appreciated getting a chance to see you work and let me just say he talks about water for elephants all the time this isn't just for the show james he this is this is a favorite for robert i don't know if anybody else feels the way i do it's one of my favorite scores thank you robert um i was very fond of that score as well um i I was fond of the movie i'm surprised it didn't perform better but there you go that's happening magical movie and magical music truly magical because it has that kind of circusy magic thing but james I just want to let you know, you are gracious to come back, as you know. Anything yeah, for you, are, you know that. You are our most requested guest. Really? People, you're, oh, your fans are out there saying, uh, can you bring him back? So, Speaking of, they today. want to know, Beasts 3 is coming up. Anything else in the hopper? I saw that uh, the producing team for Jungle Cruise, has a, a they're bringing back Emily and Dwayne for another project any chance you're a part of that we just uh, it came out yesterday one never knows um <laughs> i'm a couple things i am excited about is um my friend larry kasdan's directing a six-part documentary on george lucas and ilm which is amazing and i'm gonna and be, you're scoring it yeah i'm scoring nice. it. I, i've scored it pretty much pretty much in the box you know i just want to put an asterisk on that grand canyon mm. Larry Kasdan. Mm. So that's a relationship that, how wonderful to know that you scored that film, I'm going to say, more than a minute ago. And Larry Kasdan 
maybe directed or wrote Empire or he wrote um, Empire Strikes Back, Return of the Jedi, um, Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's just wow. so fabulous that you guys are working on this. Yeah. I love that. What else? Um, and then they're doing um, his son, John Kasdan, uh, is executive producing um, a 10-part um, episodic version of Willow. Do you remember Willow? That was a, mm, yeah. that movie? And it, this is at Lucasfilm, and I think it's yeah. going to be amazing. So, um, And then there's other things, but you know, that's. I'm also trying to balance my life a little bit because I ain't no spring chicken. But man, if you well, can figure that you. out, That's great. God bless. But selfishly, I just can't wait to hear more music because it's always a surprise, and it's always, as Kenny said, elite. Well, thank Truly you, first class. I'm super excited about the Beast movie. I think it's by far the best one. It's really good. Uh, Mads Mikkelsen is playing Grindelwald. Oh, he's um, so good. He's so great, and it's just great. It's full of magic and scary stuff and romantic it's just really fun so do you know if jungle cruise is getting a, a vinyl release or a physical release no i don't know because i want we will i need to know <laughs> i'll Kenny's keep a lookout for that but man james queen. newton howard i i meant what i said i didn't know it was possible but everything that you've been releasing it, it just somehow keeps getting better and better and i don't know if how if there's a ceiling but you you keep blowing out the ceiling and <laughs> we're so glad to have you on this season and and welcome you back on the show we really appreciate your time sir. it's been a pleasure talking to you all and um Stay thank healthy so and and uh really great to see you robert let's hope all of us thank you so much and Likewise, and I wish for all of us a restful night tonight. Yes. I can't ask for anything more than some Get some sleep, sleep everyone. One and a reminder time. to our listeners, uh, you can follow us. There's a number of ways. Twitter, at Score the Podcast. Instagram, at Score Movie. Facebook, Score a Film Music Documentary. And don't forget to sign up on Patreon, patreon.com slash more score. Exclusive interviews. And the season doesn't end. Our season here on Score the Podcast is about to wrap up, but more score goes all throughout the year, so sign up now and get caught up. There's hours of content waiting. And stick around after the show today. We're going to play you a clip from Spitfire Audio so you can hear some of the sample sounds to help elevate your music. Robert, take it away, man. Hey, I'm just a happy guy. It's a beautiful day, and uh, I talked to one of the great musicians on the planet, so no, no problem here. Thank you so much, JNH. We'll see you soon. Bye, you guys. Hey, SCORE listeners, we are so grateful for so many good things in our life. One of them is we get Spitfire Audio to help us put on this show. Every single podcast is supported by Spitfire Audio, and we're lucky because we're included in an incredible amount of talent at Spitfire, and um, they collaborate. They're collaborations, those, too, those, yeah. Those libraries with Hans... And Bernard Herman Estate, they build these sample libraries that elevate your music. You're about to hear a musical demo of what that sounds like. Yeah, we're going to play you a clip right now with the uh, from the Contemporary Drama Toolkit. Now, this has become one of Spitfire's most popular libraries because it really has it all for broadcast-ready film scores, TV scores. Uh, and you can save 25% off your first order from Spitfire right now using the promo code SCORE2021. That's exclusive from us to you. 
and it's not going to last forever. So if you're watching now, we have a couple weeks left in the season, and I don't know how long it's going to stick around because 2021 is, as Robert was just saying before we started recording, it's almost gone. Can't believe it. Uh, So use the promo code SCORE2021. You can save 25% off this package and many more. Here's a clip right now from the Contemporary Drama Toolkit. contemporary drama tools um maybe not so uh that was a good tell them where to go robert i would say you go to score 2021 on the spitfire site and get your incredible bargain price 25 percent off that's almost like a quarter off that's it that's exactly what it is actually well it's so like according to math Yep. According to math. All right, we're going to catch you in two weeks on our season finale. You don't want to miss it. See us on uh, social media to find out who it's going to be. We'll announce it next week. This is Score the Podcast for Carol Cusmanto and Robert Kraft. I'm Kenny Holmes. We'll see you soon. I love 